Thanksgiving for? I had my best month. Boy, things are picking up for you. Good. Good for you. Glad to do it. Anybody else? Oh, when did you come in? I missed you. I was going to give you a big hug. Now you're already down. We missed you. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning, your words. Um, for the great sacrifice that too often we forget and take for granted. Pardon, please. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to put ourselves away, to deny ourselves genuinely how hard it is um, to grow into you. I, I may be speaking too personally here for myself. I think the closer we get to you, um, the harder it is because um, we see our sins more deeply. Help us all to know that that's a grace, um, to take some comfort in it because it's never easy to see our sins. So strengthen us in our efforts, please, to put ourselves away, um, to not despair ever, whatever our sins, um, to hold on to you, to, um, to do all that we can to walk with you. Um, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing here um, and all of it help us um, to find you um, more often in our world. Um, so often we get bound to a little reading of the Bible and miss you. Um, you're never not here. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to open our eyes, to open our ears, um, to be more responsive to you, to look for you, to find you. Um, let it be a blessing for all of us. Um, ask a blessing for Chester. Um, you might have to hold him back here. Um, the, looks like he's on fire. Continue to bless him in his efforts and obviously the joy he takes and the good that he's doing. And um, we offer um, a follow-up blessing for Gita and her daughter and her marriage. Um, bless that marriage. Um, surround that couple with your love and a grace. Help them to move forward um, knowing they don't deserve each other. None of us do as they grow forward, move forward to find in each other a gift um, to grow closer to you and to each other. Um, and let their marriage be um, a source of blessing for Gita. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Can you all take out Shakespeare? I'm so sorry Marcy's not here because part of my opening was in response to some of the questions that she raised. I'm really, really sorry she's not here. Um, can you take out the Shakespeare sonnets? I want to read the sonnet we heard last week and then follow it up with another. Sonnet 94. We went through this, so I'm not going to do it again. I just want to read it again because I know each time we hear it, it its meaning gets clearer. That's, that's the value of going over things again. I'm so glad to see you. How did the wedding go? Thank you for your prayers. It was beautiful. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. 
She said she felt the prayer, she felt the love. Really? She did? She said that? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. God bless her heart. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do it. Um, we've already talked about this, so I'm not going to go over it again, but rem remember, he's talking about this group of people, small group of people, um, who have this innate goodness, this inherent goodness. This is so directly to our... I want you to hold on to this line, because I'm going to come back to it again when we talk about Helena. Um, this small group of people who, whose virtues are so strong that they don't have to overcome temptations. Um, once again, I think I may be speaking too much for some. No, I know what an effort is to, over, to have to overcome my own sins to do good. That's a real struggle. I'm, I'm assuming it is for lots of it, but I know that there are people for whom that's less true than it is for me, say. He's talking about this small group of people who, who have a strong enough sense of virtue in themselves that, that they, they don't have to overcome something to exercise. They do it naturally. It's a part of who they are. Helen is a creature like that. And um, he sets it off against those other people who use their powers for themselves. It can be a basketball player, it can be a doctor, it can be a lawyer, it can be a teacher, um, a wealthy man, a pianist, an opera singer, doesn't matter. So often, um, the gifts that we have, we, um, e e even when, I don't, how, how conscious are we when we have them of the influence that they may have on other people and the way people get drawn to us when we exercise them? And the power that those gifts can have on others. I mean, they can be seductive. We know that. Um, watch basketball fans or, or music fans or, you know, celebrity Western country fans. Or when I mean, you watch their response to the people, the artists or the athletes, and you, you're aware that they're so drawn into an influence, they can be overcome by it. Shakespeare's talking about people who have that power, who do not use it for themselves. They're completely self-giving in what they do. Um, so we've talked about it. I want to just leave it, and then I want to read another poem that's a f part of the same sonnet cycle that's a follow-up to it. Sonnet 94. We talked about the difference between they that have the power to hurt and will do none, and they that have the power but will do none. Shakespeare doesn't use but. If he, because in either case, they still go on to do virtue. Even if a but will do none, but will do none. They won't, they won't misuse their powers. So in either case, they don't abuse their powers, but clearly in one case, they don't have to overcome themselves. In the other, they do. So these are people, they that have the power to hurt and will do none. Right? Their actions are consonant with their virtue. They don't have to overcome, there's no opposition. What they do is an expression of their virtue, this intrinsic goodness in them. Sonnet 94. They that have the power to hurt and will do none, do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husbands' nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flowers to the summer sweet, it just lives. 
It's not doing something self-conscious for itself. It's not like a beautiful woman um, who's caught in her vanity. It, it's just living. It's being. It's being what it is. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, but to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. If you have a beautiful flower in the summer um, and it meets with some infection, it's, um, it's going to be worse than the weeds around it. The weeds around it will be more attractive than it because once something that has gifts goes bad, it goes worse than those things that are inferior to it. Yeah? To whom more is given, more is expected. I gave the example of two pieces of meat. If you take a really rich piece of steak and a poor piece of steak, put them out in the sun, the really good piece of meat will rot more. There will be more maggots, more worms. When people have virtues and they misuse them, they become worse than people who have fewer virtues. But if that flower with base infection meat, the basis weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Can you turn to 116? This sonnet is, a, is one of the most valued love sonnets in the, all of the English poetry tradition. It's often read at, at marriages and weddings. Um, and notice um, the, the use of not, 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 not. Um, the, 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 one, one of the ways you define something is by saying what it's not. You take its opposite or something different from it. But think about the use of knots here um, because of the, the role that they play. And notice all, also the, the use of impediments. Um, remember, it's four quatra three quatrains, four lines, and then a concluding couplet. Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. When its beloved changes, it doesn't. It remains constant. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worst unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Love is constant, no matter what. It's an ever-fixed mark. Um, the reason I chose these, going back to last week, is because in some ways they're, they're such perfect expressions of something in uh, Helena. Okay. Let's see, just quick. Um, I want to go back to Griselda just very briefly and take a look at Two Dangers. I'm so sorry, Marcy's name. And this week we're, we're going to get more into All's Well. And I want to, I want to place the play, All's Well That Ends Well, 
in the context of modernity. So that, um, so that we see the play as a contrast to Chaucer's Griselda story, The, the Clerk's Tale. Um, because if we set the two stories next to each other, we've got a clear, a clear illustration of a shift that takes place from the Catholic Middle Ages to the modern world. So I want to just speak briefly about um, this threshold and the events that have taken place. And, and um, important dogmas, important people, Mary and Christ. I'm going to talk specifically about them tonight because of their relevance, I think, to the play. Um, some modern influences, I'll come to them. And, and what I'd like to do is treat all of this as the background to the Helena story, what's going on in that story. And then we'll look at some of the themes, the changes that are taking place in France, the court life, the, the relationship between marriage and virginity, um, the relationship between children and their par parents. If you watch, if you read the story, it's almost impossible not to feel the, the suffering that parents have to endure because of their children. Um, it's one of the amazing themes of this story. Be careful of having children. What else is there to say? Um, or, or at least be prepared. Um, and then the um, importance of miracles. So. Um, that's what I want to look at tonight. I want to go back, and I'm sorry, Justin's not here. Wow, where is God? Um, I've got a major question that's a follow-up. We, um, we, we, we started um, All's Well That Ends Well last week late. Um, and I went through the story, and if you, those of you who were here last week will remember that Marcy interrupted and said, at that point I would shoot the guy, um, um, Walter, Walter, yeah, um, and the henchman, and, and we had a discussion about the, um, what seemed to be positive and negative aspects of Griselda's story. Let me just take one minute to rehearse it, and then I want to raise two questions with you guys here. Um, you remember that the story's about this marquis who, who ages somewhat, and the townspeople are concerned that he's childless, he won't have an heir, and that they will be left without a good ruler. So they um, encourage him to marry, and he does. He, he, come, he is out traveling, and he sees this young, beautiful girl, Griselda, who, who's born into poverty, her dad's poor. He's so taken with her that he announces that he's going to get married. Nobody knows who the woman's going to be. And he surprises everybody by going to the cottage and um, asking for the hand of Griselda from the father. And then says he wants to speak to her directly. And he goes to her and asks for her hand in their marriage. But before they go on, he makes it clear that there has to be one condition for their going on, that the vow she takes, that if he asks her to do something, she has to do it. And she agrees. That's their vow. They get married. Shortly after that, Walter goes to Griselda to remind her of her vow and then decides to test her. And you know that he tells this henchman to go fetch her. And the henchman is, um, has an, an air of malice. I mean, he looks like a cruel kind of man. He, he gives every impression that 
some harm might come to the girl. He doesn't say anything. He takes the girl and... Baby, not Griselda. Huh? You didn't make that clear. What? He takes the baby. The, the daughter. Um, before he takes her, um, Griselda takes the daughter to her breast, kisses her, and then signs her with a cross and lets her go. Years pass, they have another child, it's a son this time, and the, Walter does the same thing with the son, takes her. In neither of those instances does Griselda blink. She doesn't cry, she doesn't weep, she doesn't complain. She's absolutely submissive. And finally, the, and the people are getting grumbling about what appears to be this cruelty on Walter's part, um, he, he concocts this plan, he makes up this plan to get a false letter from Rome um, disapproving of the marriage so he can dissolve it and marry another. And sends Griselda away with her poor clothes, um, tells her he's going to get divorced and he's going to marry this other woman. And then it, um, before it happens, he asks her to come serve the woman who's going to replace her. She does all of this without complaint, no anger, no bitter, no resentments, nothing possessive. She is absolutely faithful to her vow. Um, the young woman comes with a boy, and as it turns out, the woman is their daughter. She's, I think she's 12 at this point. Um, Griselda doesn't know that. She serves the woman. She goes to Walter at one point and says she has something to ask him. She asks him to be more tender of this girl because he's not sure that she will be able to take what she took. And, and then... Um, resigns her tough to what's going on. When Walter sees that, he finally relents. He's, he sees that her, her patience can't be matched, and he tells her that the, that the supposed bride is her daughter, their daughter, and the boy their son. She, she um, f falls down unconscious at, that, at the news of that because she's believed all along that she lost her daughter and son. When she comes to consciousness, she, it's, it's like, I, I believe this is really like the moment in The Wife of Bastille, when the woman, remember when the old hag turns beautiful? And, and I think if we miss something, if we don't see this as a resurrection scene, because in her mind, these kids are dead. So to have her kids there is a wondrous moment. It's overwhelming. She's overwhelmed with joy, takes the kids to herself, and they love, and, and the story plays out. Um, Walter dies, the two of them die, and the son becomes an heir. And Anyway, the, I was telling the story, and right at that point where I said, so Walter sends a henchman to get their daughter and take it away, Marcy exclaimed, <laughs> she, she exclaimed, she said, the story stops there. What, I can't remember the page, 336, I'm not sure. She said, the story stops there. At that point, and she would, she meant it. Marcy was absolutely serious, absolutely serious. She, to say she was angry is not an understatement. She said, at that point I take out my gun and I shoot him. And after I shoot him, I pray to God that that man be sent to hell. <laughs> so we had, a, we had an interesting discussion about the positive and negative sides of Griselda and, and, and I think both sides came out. I don't want to revisit that because we've got to get on. Um, the, the Griselda story is a variation on the Job story, except it has to do with the suffering that a woman is put through because of the demands a husband puts on her. I don't believe there's a woman alive who, who doesn't suffer from the demands that men make. And I don't believe there's a man alive who doesn't suffer from 
whatever demands a woman plays. That's just the nature of marriage. But I don't want to go there. Here's my question, and it's very serious. And I'm sorry Marcy's not here, but, and I want to get her out of it. I don't want to make this personal. No. Let me make this hypothetical, okay? We're in the story, and when the henchman comes to take the daughter, the wife, or it just can't be, somebody, the wife, pulls out a gun and shoots him. What's wrong? There's something pretty serious wrong here. I'm just so sorry Marcy's not here. What's revenge wrong? Revenge is the Lord's. Huh? Revenge is the Lord's, not... That's murder. one, for That's sure. Revenge. That's murder one. Revenge. <laughs> Protecting your own. Oh, boy. Remember what time this was set, when women were considered... Oh, would you stop that? No! Okay, no! Look at the wife of Bat. No, no, that's just that generalization. I, I don't worry. It, it, historically, it's just not founded. Let's get away. What's wrong with this scene? It, I mean, it's really obvious. Well, the fact that someone's coming to take a child. That's... If this went to a court of law and we know the facts, um, what would happen in a court of law with a lawyer defending the other side? Let's say Marcy's there. I don't want to. Uh, which, which side? We, yeah, what's the other Marcy, Mar but let's put the, a, a woman in Marcy's place takes out a gun and shoots the henchman and Walter. What's wrong? Huh? The henchman is is following the orders of the marquis. Yeah, and, and but I've included both. She would have killed them both. Does the hench wait? Does is the is the husband committing a murder? Does he have any intention of killing the child? No. No, he doesn't. I mean, I want to really get clear here, because this is too important. Because what's ultimately at stake here is how well we read. And Boethius is everywhere. Boethius said, there's no, there's no bad fortune. Wait, wait, hold on. There's an irony in the story. And if you, read, if you go back and read it, Chaucer's masterful. He, if, you, if you read the page leading up to the moment when the henchman takes the son, he gives a description. He doesn't give it away. He, he gives nothing away. He describes the henchman as if he's got this malice on him. So that it would seem justified to any woman being put in that position to kill him. But it's a page later, it's clear. He had never any intention to kill the child. If that came out in a court of law, what would happen to the woman? Oh, it does. No, well, he, he, he did not commit a crime. He did not. There's conspiracy. He did not commit a crime. He was, he was not forthcoming. He was not polite about explaining what was going on. Right. But he didn't commit a crime. Right. Well, who's well, orders, well, but who's, who's no, in you charge can't of give permission order? to someone else to steal your child. Yeah. That's you, who's no, you don't have that but the father, the father was the father's the father. child, too. Yeah. yeah. But still, I can't sit there for my ex-wife and send you over there to go steal my kid. But it happens. All the, here. <laughs> because <laughs> par parents make... Here. Par I just want to get but to a little ground here. Well, you could. <laughs> yeah, it would, but it would not be legal. <laughs> Here, the point I want to make, two points. Walter, Walter never intended to kill the child. That's a misreading of the scene. You can say, justifiably, there was every indication that he, you know, but he didn't. And that would make a difference in a court of law. I, I don't want to quibble. I don't want to get in. I, what I'm saying is, there's... Chaucer's aware of an irony here, and he's got Boethius behind him. We so often act as if we think we know the whole backstory, 
or what's coming, and we don't. And we often rush to judgment. And when we do, and we, and we do it very often justifying ourselves, self-righteously, because we're right. Now, hold on to that just for a moment. Because Christ never complained, and nobody was more unjustly executed than he was. So on, on just on, on one level, the, the, the husband never intended to kill. So if we factor that in, you've got a different story for anybody who says, shoot him right there. Mark, I want you to just hold off for a minute. Because I, I I what I want to do is get some things out to, to deal with the ironies of the story. Because without them, we can take a black-white reading of this, and that isn't what Chaucer's doing. The second thing is, what about saying, I pray to Christ to, uh, to damn that guy, to send him to hell? That's not our thing. That's wrong. Because? We don't judge. Because we are not supposed to judge others. I mean, you said it earlier when you said, vengeance is not mine. The second commandment, which is a mortal commandment, says... Can't take the name of God in vain. We cannot speak for God. Moreover, Christ Himself says, "Forgive enemies." I'm really concerned here because it's so easy to hate. What, with understandably, it's so easier to hate Him, but to justify doing violence in the context that we've given it, the Chaucer's presented it, presents a danger to us. I'm saying we have to be very. Chaucer knew what he was doing. We have to be very careful in the way that we read because so often we bring preconceptions into the way we interpret things. This man is not a killer. I don't think any of us likes him much. I've already said I'd have words. I'd have words for him if I were. Pretty serious words. But shooting a guy is, I mean, it, it, what it does is point up the irony of the story that so easily we can miss. Okay? I'd like to stop there because I just want to go back and ask everybody to think about that. I'm sorry Marcy's not here because the Griselda story raises real questions about ironies and the humility of a woman. Um, and <laughs> hold on to Wife of Bath because in some ways Wife of Bath is far more resented, I mean, representative you know, in what Chaucer does with her. Um, but what, what was his pur purpose of doing it? Doing what? Was what Walter was doing? He was testing. Right. He was testing. Faithful to her vows. Yeah, and testing her obedience largely. I mean, her humility. Different times. That's what I was trying to say. The storyteller did say that he was cruel. He used that descriptive adjective several times in there. The cruel Marquis did this. The cruel Marquis did that. That's interesting. Here, let's go on. The the reason that I ended with Griselda. Remember, if you go back and look at the way that I set up the reading, we did um, The Reeves, The Miller's Tale, Knights. Then we did um, the, the three church officials, the partner, the friar, to look at the, the way in which um, church officials abused their authority. Then we looked at the women, Constance Dorgen, the prioress, the wife of Bath, and in, in a summary sort of fashion, we brought all of it together. I mean, one of the conclusions that we can come away with when we read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is the women are, are infinitely superior to the men. Infinitely superior to the men. Um, 
they're spiritually much deeper than the men because the men get caught up in the world and want to use the world to their own advantage. The only, the only you know, the, the feminine creature who does that is wife of Bath, and she's a very, very selfish woman. She uses the men, she plays her sex, she counts on it. She's, she's the counterpart of the men, except the men are doing it with spiritual realities. They're, they're trafficking in spiritual things, which in some ways makes their sin graver. But if you look at the men and women, generally speaking, through the Canterbury Tales, the women are far superior to the men. They have a spiritual depth that the men don't have. The men are... They have time to do it, though. <laughs> God, would you... God. <laughs> Not, no. Would you be... <laughs> Doug, would you move over, please? Is it throw chalk? Here, come... If, if you could focus on the stories, don't act innocent, Mark. God, um, here, the the women are spiritually superior because they're not caught up in that world. Okay, the wife of Bath is in some ways. Um, we I, I deliberately left the the uh, clerk's tale for the last so I could put her next to Shakespeare, so that we have an example of. Um, a Christ-like virtue in a woman that looks back to a Catholic world and a woman who is, in my mind, we'll see what you guys think, to me is, is probably the most extraordinary heroine in all of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and in that sense, I, I did it because I wanted, I wanted everybody here to experience Shakespeare's awareness of what's happening in the world and how he takes what I believe is, a, and I think the story supports it, this extraordinary Christ-like virtue in this woman called Helena, okay? To hold those two things against, next to each other. So, very quickly, a quick review. We're on the threshold of modernity, and I, I said this last week, but I want to repeat it again because it's so important. Shakespeare is aware of the Copernican Revolution. The scientific revolution has already taken place. Copernicus published his works. It's a time of extraordinary doubting, skepticism, because the whole Ptolemaic way of looking at the world has collapsed. The, the authority that the church had, I want you, everybody think seriously about it. The authority the church had was called into question because it was, it, it received part of its support from Ptolemy. That whole worldview is demolished. So everybody's questioning authority everywhere. Copernican revolution has taken place. People are no longer turning to the church and its sacraments they're turning to reason. In a century and a half, it's gonna to lead to the Enlightenment world. You're gonna have Voltaire and all the Enlightenment thinkers saying, get rid of the church, it's primitive and superstitious. Who believes in that stuff anymore? Reason is capable of answering all of our problems. And we're on our way into the modern world. It's gonna to lead to Hawthorne and Melville and Faulkner and all the other moderns that we've looked at. Shakespeare's aware of the Copernican Revolution, one. The whole scientific way is beginning to shape man's mind and he's starting to turn away from anything miraculous, the miracles, the sacraments, and attempting to deal with all the world's problems um, with his powers of reason, unaided reason, okay? He knows Copernicus, he knows Machiavelli. Machiavelli has written The Prince and in The Prince, Machiavelli basically makes an argument for the ends justifying the means politically. A political ruler who wants to take control of his people can ply them. He says, 
going back to the um, Roman world, give them entertainment, feed them food. That's absolutely modern. Um, go on the television today and watch how many people are taken up by entertainment today. I mean, it, it, it dominates our lives. Keep people entertained and feed them bread. Give them circuses because it will keep them quiet. Uh, but if the ends justify the means, it also means people, human beings are expendable. You can kill somebody if it gets in the way of your rule. The modern rule, the rule, the, govern, the rule of governance in the modern world is Machiavellian. It's called political, if you go to a university today, you don't take politics, which is what you do at UD, you take political science. Because the belief is science, politics can be reduced to a science. There are determinisms in it, like all sciences. You can catch them. And if you know that, you'll know how to rule. Shakespeare knows Machiavelli. He knows Luther. He knows all the Reformation, Calvin, Luther. Um, he's experienced the Reformation directly, firsthand. He knows what happened with Henry V. The sacraments have been taken away. In the middle of this play, we're going to come to a character that says, all miracles are over. Um, because Shakespeare is living in an age in which people are being encouraged, led to believe that miracles are past. One of the extraordinary things about the play is that they're not because Helena performs one. Okay? This is not about women. It's about a woman, this extraordinary creature. The Countess could never do what Helena does. Um, so one thing is that he knows all of these people. I've suggested before, when we talked about the beginnings of modernity, that one of the ways to understand what happens on that threshold is what I'm calling the advent of the sign. The advent of the sign. of the sign. <coughs> Christ had just performed a miracle. Um, you know, he, he fed the 3,000, the 5,000. Um, the, the, the disciples witnessed the multiplication of the fish and the bread, and there were leftovers. It started with a couple of baskets, and they ended up with more than they. Um, after that miracle happened, when they went off by themselves, the disciples said to him, show us a sign. And he said, you'll see the sign of Jonah. Um, Christ has been the sign. He did everything. He performed a miracle right in front of their eyes. And they're wanting signs. What they're asking for is a rationalization, a technical reduction that will fit their minds. They're, they're not, they haven't entered into a miracle in what Christ is doing. They're holding themselves back. If you read the Bread of Life discourse um, in the Gospel, you, you know that at Capernaum in the temple, this is before the Last Supper and the crucifixion, Christ has that meeting with the disciples when he said, unless you eat of this, unless you drink, this is my body and blood, this is me, unless you do this, you will have no part with me. Half of his disciples walked out. Walked out. Because it was forbidden for Jews to drink blood. The, the idea was grotesque and horrible to them. Um, it was just too hard. So we're aware that there's a tendency, even of people who are close to Christ, to rationalize, to keep at a distance what he was doing. Because what he was asking them to do was to, to realize that 
there was something transcendent in man. Um, he came to help fulfill that by all that he did. Um, so Shakespeare was aware of all these things, these changes taking place. Three things I want to go back to, one of which we've already covered in the, in the, in the period, the work we did on Milton and Dante. In the Reformation, in breaking from Rome, those, those groups that broke from Rome established a, a principle of schism and defiance. If people could break from Rome, anybody, anybody could. If they established that as a principle, who couldn't be justified? And what happened after that follows suit. It just continues to fragment. If one person can justify a break from Rome, the central unity of Christendom goes down. England defected from the faith. That's the first major political defection in Europe. Remember, I've said again and again, once you establish a break from Rome, then anybody can break, whatever their reasons are. Um, purity of spirit can never be just national or racial or sexual. or any, It has to be universal. Christ, Christ is whole. He, his truth is one. It can't be divided. What that break sets up is... Um, relativizing principles, subjective principles. Um, because you know that all these sects say, I'm the truth, I'm the truth, and they all hold different truths. They don't even deal with their contradictions. Truth can't contradict, can't, can't contradict itself. Um, so a relativizing got set up and a subjectivizing, whatever I believe is true, whatever you believe is true, the objectivity, the truth of God gets broken. So the Reformation is underway. The faith is broken, fragmented, divided. That's one on a large political level. Two, and this is where it gets hairy. Let me say this up front here because I'm, I'm not just... I think All's Well That Ends Well is one of Shakespeare's greatest plays. It's presented... It's treated as a problem play by most critics for this reason. It's lighter than the early comedies. They're light. It's like Jane, Jane Austen, after she wrote Pride and Prejudice, say she was a little bit disappointed because she thought it was too light. And she wrote Emma and Mansfield Park and did other things. But you said it was lighter than his earlier comedies? Pride and Prejudice was lighter than her later. No, you said Shakespeare. You said it was lighter. Also, that Enzo is lighter than his early No, the critic, it, it's not, sorry, if I, when critics look at Shakespeare's play, the earlier plays are lighter than Oswell. They see it as a darker play. It's not as comic, it's not as light. Um, and they're critical of it. The, there are difficulties in language. You would see them tonight when we start going through the play. There are things going on in Oswell that I don't think people read well, and let me give you the reason. What Shakespeare's doing in All's Well That Ends Well is this. He's not taking a woman in orders. It's not a nun, it's not a sister. He's taking an ordinary woman, like all the women present here. He's taking an ordinary woman in an ordinary situation, a romance, and showing that she's capable, because of her faith, of doing extraordinary things. And I'm gonna to argue tonight that that's peculiar to women. 
it's, it's consistent with what Chaucer, what we've got from Chaucer. Lots of men are not going to like this, but um, she's doing something that's peculiar to women, and it's not a gift that all women open themselves to, obviously. What Helen is doing, we've got to get to there. What is that? One of my great worries about this play is I'm not sure that I can do it justice, yet, um, but I'm going to be trying to do all I can to do that. Let me go back to Mary to try to make something clear here. One of the great themes of the play, as you know from reading it, is this relationship between virginity and marriage. The opening, one of the opening scenes is this dialogue between Parolles and, and Helena about virginity. We'll get to it in a second. What Shakespeare's showing us is that virginity and marriage are identified in a way that most people, Parolles can't begin to see it. He cannot. Won't. He's a stupid man. I mean, utterly stupid. He's just a fool. Um, let me try to make sense of this a little bit with Mary, okay? Um, Mary conceived Christ as a virgin, okay? It was her obedience to God, absolute obedience. She didn't ask for reasons when the angel came and said, you're going to have a child. She didn't ask for reasons. She didn't want to clear the path to make sure she understood what was going on before she entered into it. She's called the apostle of the apostles, the greatest of the apostles for that reason, because her obedience was perfect. That's one of the things Chaucer had to have in his mind with Griselda. Okay? She was absolutely obedient. She didn't say, I'll do it under these conditions, or... or let me know what I'm up against so I know what my risks are, what I might lose, or... She said yes. She said yes. Stop and think about this. Not only was her obedience perfect, when her son was on the cross, did she take out a gun and shoot the guys who killed him? What was her response? I'm, I'm, I'm kidding here. I'm, so, I'm just so sorry, Mark. What was her response to the men who put her son on the... By the way, this was her babe, her son. She watched this... She raised this boy. What was the response to the people who murdered him? I'm asking for an honest response here, knowing Mary. In Mary, if you've read Dante, and we've all done that, you know that Mary had prevenient, she was given a prevenient grace because she was going to bear God. She's the only human being in existence after the fall, the only human being who is perfect in all virtues. If you look at all the sins in the, in the Purgatorio and Dante, um, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, you know that every one of those sins is countered by its opposite. Right? What's the, what's the virtue opposite of pride? Humility. Humility. What's the virtue opposite? We went through all of this when we did. What's the virtue opposite of envy? Generosity or mercy. Because remember, envy envies that feeling of wanting to see somebody lose. Um, you're happy when somebody else is sad because they've lost something, right? Mercy is the opposite. Um, you're sad when somebody's sad. You want to be more generous and help them when they're losing something. Because when envy gets in the way, we want to get back at somebody who's, who's been given something we don't. 
Mary was perfect in every one of those virtues. Wrath, what's the, what's the virtue opposite of anger when somebody hurts you? Hmm? Meekness. Anyway, do you, you see where I'm going. She was perfect in every one of those virtues. What was her response to the men who put her son on the cross? Docility. I mean, she just simply was with her son. Yeah. Any note of vengeance? Wrath? I'd like to kill those guys? Christ said, Christ, her son, forgive your enemies, what you're watching in what you're watching in Mary, and stop and think this is just it's too deep for me, honestly. I'm saying it truthfully. Too deep for me. Um, Mary's a virgin. She's a means of as a woman, she's the means of bringing God into the world. If it weren't for her, Christ wouldn't enter the world. It's only through a woman that human beings come into the world. I've used this term before. Anima naturalite Christiana. We saw this in Lewis. The natural human soul. The natural human soul. There is not a human being who's ever been made who was not made in the image of God. Abortion, kill it. There's not a human being. If God was the word, the maker of all things, there's not a human being that not, we're not Calvinists. We do not believe somebody's demonic, predestined to be evil. Every human being is made in the image of God. So according to our Catholic beliefs from the beginning, um, we, we have, in essence, in essence, this natural inclination to move with God. It's in our nature. So Mary was the means of bringing Christ into the world. In Mary, what's made clear is that in bringing a child into the world, a, a woman is opening herself to all the possibilities of being one with God, whatever that means, doing what Christ did. Um, and she was a virgin. I just don't want to forget that. That is, her obedience was so great that because it was, she opened herself to the fullness of everything in life. That meant the joy of having God as her son and all the suffering that that would entail in her life. Now, set that next to Griselda, set it next to Helen when we look at Helen, because this whole question about virginity and marriage is central to this play. So a woman has this distinction, and has nothing to do with education. Remember what we learned from Boethius. People who strive for wealth, power, image, or honor, and pleasure are all going to be disappointed. What do most people in the world, men and women, strive for? Wealth, power, pleasure, honor, image, approval. All of those are illusory because when you put your trust in them and work for them, you're going to be disappointed because they're all perishable. It's only when a human being remembers his beginning and his ends. He came from God, he's to go back. 
It's only when he does that that he keeps his mind there that he can manage in the world. Now keep that in mind when you're watching Helen and what she does. Okay. So woman is the bearer of children. That is, she's a, a bearer of somebody made in Christ's image. So she's the, the means of making possible, making real all of these possibilities that come into play once a human being comes into existence. If he doesn't, there's nothing there. Okay. So there's this paradoxical relationship between marriage and, and, and um, virginity that Shakespeare's playing on, and we'll see it in a minute. That's Mary. Christ, Christ came into the world, he was God, to answer an injustice. We've already gone through this with Dante. He, he answered an injustice by, by going to a cross justly. If it wasn't just, he wouldn't have answered our failures, right? So he had to go to a cross to pay for our sin. That was an act of justice. So if you look at the nature assumed, because he assumed our human nature, our fallen nature, it was an act of justice. If you look at the person who assumed the nature, it was absolutely unjust. That's the great paradox. Christ took on a body, so um, brought something divine to our nature and called us to share in it. So we know that through Christ, we can enter into a divine work after he came. Okay? Listen to this letter. I just took this. This was last week from Paul. I went because this is almost Helena. Beloved, I remind you to stir into flame the gift of God that you have through the imposition of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power and love and self-control. So do not be ashamed of your testimony to our Lord, nor of me, prisoner for his sake, but bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. He did not give us a spirit of cowardice. He gave us rather power, love, self-control. Man has been given a divine power and asked to share in that. I've given that word before called theosis. Theosis, remember, it's the, early, it's the word used by the early church fathers to say that man gradually entered into a divine life. He became adopted sons. That's Paul's word. He took on a divine quality. Okay, so, so um, think about what Christ did. When he performed his miracles, this is stunning. When he performed his miracles, he never gave a man eyes who didn't have eyes. He didn't put ears on a man's head who didn't have ears. In every miracle, he takes away an impediment that's there in our nature. Something's in the way. We're in a fall. Clear the eyes so the guy could see. Clear the ears so he could hear, you know, whatever it was. Heal the man so he could walk. He always took away impediments. Let me not to the marriage true minds admit impediments. And by doing that, he made all those people free. Okay? So at the center of our faith are all these mysteries in a sense that God offered us something divine and that woman has always had this extraordinary power. Didn't rest on class position, think about Helena. Didn't rest on wealth or education. 
Um, it was native because she was the source of bringing life into the world. Um, so there are all these mysteries that, that enter into our human life. Now set all of them against the modern world. Scientific determinisms, Freudian, you name it, Darwin, whatever it is. Because in the middle of this play you're going to have a guy say, mysteries are past, miracles are over. And in that context, um, Helen is going to perform this extraordinary miracle. So in this play, Shakespeare's dealing with a very ordinary woman, um, but she does something nobody else can. Not the other women, not the other men. Um, it's a problem play for lots of critics because lots of critics don't enter into the story believing those things. I mean, they're going to have trouble reading it from the outset. Um, so, I want to, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to just slowly go through some of the scenes because I think they're all, the language I think is difficult in this play. But remember, I, this is background last week. In this play, we're, Shakespeare's taking us to France. We're in an aristocratic world. It's a class world. There are nobles and landed and lords. And Helena happens to be born into a class inferior to Bertram's. It's one of the reasons he doesn't want to marry her. He's, he's ashamed. He's got that much pride. He's ashamed of her. He's ashamed that he would be identified with somebody lowly. That's a mark of that class. When we enter this world, we're in an aristocratic world. It's France. The king is, the king is sick. One of his greatest lords, Bertram's father, has just died. Lefeu comments on the fact that a nobility seems to be a thing of the past. The countess lost her husband. Bertram's lost a father. At the end of the play, there's a widow and her daughter, but no, no husband. There are, once again, this is Merchant of Venice, for those of you who remember, there are no marriages. There are no marriages. We're in a French world that's in decay. Something's wrong. When Helena goes to Italy, she's going to bring back something that's going to cure this situation. Remember, the, the, the Renaissance started in Italy and moved west. It's to Italy that she goes, and it's from Italy that she comes. And when she comes, she brings, she brings back a means for overcoming those class divisions. She's got the ring, she's pregnant. She and Bertram are going to marry. So the, the rigidity of those class divisions is overcome. So she represents a revolutionary change in France. She's going to bring a, what I'm going to call a Catholic, a democratizing, something that's um, whole into this world that's crumbling. Um, the court life is looked at as a, a, a place of trial. The countess sends um, Bertram, her son, off knowing that he's going to encounter temptations. When the king sends the men to the lords to Italy for the fight, he says, watch out for those Italian women. Paroles makes fun of, he, he, he makes light of everything. To go to court is to face temptations largely of power and sex. That's where everything happens. Um, and we know that from everything that goes on. Paroles is an image of the shallowness, the hypocrisy, the dishonesty of that life. Because outwardly he seems flashy and cool and a noble, and, but we know that he is the worst kind of man. He, he lives in words, out, outer appearances. So the court is given to outer appearances, how things look, wealth, power. Um, it's into that world that Helena comes and does something nobody else can. Okay? That's the backdrop. 
the play. All I remember, I don't, Hamlet, Hamlet was written, I think 1601, something like that. And Measure for Measure and All's Well, which are the two major yeah. problem plays, I think are written maybe three years after. Okay, 1604. So, so Queen Elizabeth is gone. She died in 1601. I've forgotten, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, because, okay, that makes, that makes yeah. sense. She, he writes Hamlet, and then that's the, the, the comedies change in tone. These are what's called problem. And then he goes on to the great tragedies. Othello, I mean, Hamlet's great, but... Othello, Macbeth, Lear, and all those. Um, let's turn to the play, because I want, I, want, I want everybody to... It says most scholars are inclined to date Paul's will that ends well sometime between 1602 and 1604. Yeah, that makes sense yep. to me. Yep. It would never have been that when Queen Elizabeth was alive. Actually, he says, I mean, he's done that throughout when she was alive and not. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting to watch Shakespeare, because... It, it, He's doing a lot that was dangerous to him all along, but more and more is he. Um, can you turn to the play? I'm going to skip a lot because um, I want to try to get to some of the major speeches. Can you all turn to the play? My real concern tonight will be to get us to... Act three, where she gets the choice of her husband's. She chooses Bertram, and he runs away. Man that he is. Opening, opening of the play, act one, scene one. Can you all turn there? In delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband, and I in going, madam, weep over my father's death anew, but I must attend his majesty's command to whom I am now in ward evermore in subjection. The king in Paris has sent for Bertram. Um, his father, the countess's husband, has died. Notice the language. I bury a second husband. Um, you'll find of the king a husband, madam. I, those, those opening lines have always bothered me a little bit. Shakespeare doesn't use language accidentally. He's, he's too great a master. My sense is that he's showing us that there's this incestuous, ingrown quality in court. You can imagine, if you're, if, you're, if you're raised in a class and you identify with that class, it will tend to get ingrown because you've automatically you've closed yourself off from everybody else. So in the opening, he's, he's playing on words, on delivering. It's what a mother does when she delivers a child. But in one sense, she's giving over to death. She's sending him off to the court. In another sense, I think it's ingrown, that we're meant to see something's wrong at court. Um, act act um, one, scene one still, about line 35 or so. Um, the countess asks about um, Helena and her father, and um, the countess praises Helena, line 35, she says, is so child, my lord, and bequeathed to me overlooking, she's at the keep of her. I have those hopes of her good that her education promises her disposition she inherits, which makes fair gifts fair. For where an unclean mind carries virtuous qualities, their commendations go with pity. Think of Bertram. He's got virtues, but his mind is so corrupted. I mean, in one sense, he seems the antithesis of Helena. 
They are virtues and traitors too. In her, they are the better for their simpleness. She derives her honesty and achieves her goodness. She inherited good gifts from her father, but she's done everything she can in the way she lives to improve them. Um, she's going to be the center of virtue through this whole thing. Um, the countess sends her son off, and um, Helena looks sad about line 75 or so. She says, over that all, I think not on my father. Everybody thinks she's sad right now because she's still grieving over her father's loss. She's grieving right now because Bertram's leaving. She says, over that all, I think not on my father. And these great tears grace his remembrance more than those I shed for him. What was he like? I forgot him. My imagination carries no favor in it but Bertram's. I'm undone. There's no living, none, if Bertram be away. Twere all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it, he's so above me. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his fear. The ambition in my love thus plagues itself. The hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. Twas pretty though a plague to see him every hour, to sit and draw his arched brows, his hawking eye, his curls in our heart's table. So she's imagining him again and again when he's not near. She reminds me of Palama Narset in the jail scene, you know, when they're imagining Emily. Hold on to that, hold on to that, because this is really important. His curls in our heart's table, heart too capable of every line and trick of his sweet favor. But now he's gone and my idolatrous fancy must sanctify his relics. She's got to make do on whatever he's leaving behind. <clears throat> One of the interesting things that we're seeing about Helena here is She's the reverse of what we've been seeing in Chaucer. It's the men who adore the women. It's the courtly lover, the man, who looks at the woman and his beloved as willing to be a slave to him, to give his life, to give, sorry, to, to give his life for her. My lord liege, that's what the, the courtier called it. We saw that comically treated and parodied in Chaucer, but it was always the man. Here, it's Helena. She looks at Bertram as the beloved. She will feel sick. She won't be able to sleep. Her love for him is so great. So when he leaves, she's distraught. She's sad. Parolles comes along about line 105, and he says, are you meditating on virginity? I, we don't have time to go into this, but Parolles, this is, Parolles is playing on, I wish we had time. He's making fun of virginity because he's saying, um, as long as virgins keep their virginity, there's no life. I mean, life, no life will come into the world. Um, and he's playing on the act of conception of intercourse. Man is enmity, enemy to virginity. How, many, how may we barricade it against him? She's asking, how do we keep a man out? So the play on holes and male instruments or, or body parts are... Keep him out, but he assails in our virginity, though valiant in the defense, yet is weak. Unfold us some more like, how do we resist men? There is none. Man setting down before you will undermine you and blow you up. You'll get pregnant. It goes on like this. He, he plays on the paradoxes of virginity and says it's only when you lose your virginity that life can come into the world. So virginity is an enemy to life. Line 140, besides virginity is peevish, proud, idle, made of self-love, which is the most inhibited sin in that canon. Unless a woman gives herself to another, the danger facing her is um, 
self-absorption. Keep it not, you cannot choose but lose by it. Out with it, within a year, will make itself two, which is goodly increase. He goes on and on like this, and then about line 160 he says, um, it's like one of our French withered pears. It looks ill, it eats dryly. Mary, it's a withered pear. That is, if you remain virgin. It was formerly better. Mary, yet tis a withered pear. Will you anything with it? Now here, this is, I think, well, this is her first really important speech, and I want to slow down and ask you what she means. He just said, will you do anything with your virginity? And she says, not my virginity yet. And, and then she follows, she says, there shall your master have a thousand loves, um, infinite. There shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, and a friend, a phoenix. Remember, the phoenix was bisexual, and he rose from his death. A phoenix, captain, an enemy, a guide, a goddess, a sovereign, a counselor, a traitress, and a deer. His humble ambition, proud humility, his jarring concord, his discord dulcet, his faith, his sweet disaster. So that's what she'll be to him. With a word of pretty fond adoptious Christendoms that blinking Cupid gossips, that is the pretty things that are said about mistresses when men want to seduce them at court. Now shall he, I know not what he shall, God send him well, the court's a learning place and he is one. It goes on, but stop here. What is she saying in this speech? He says, will you do anything with your virginity? She says, not my virginity yet. There shall you master, and then she lists. What is she, she saying? Karen. I don't know. Just, well, she's not married, so that's why she's so virgin. I know, but what is she saying? That there, your master will have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, a friend, captain, enemy, a goddess. Put all of those things together. She's willing to wait for him to learn to become a man. Right. She's willing to wait through all this. But what does all that mean? That's my question. <laughs> he's going to, at court, he's going to have lots of other lovers and experience them in different ways until he's ready to be a good husband or something. I don't know. I think what she's saying... No, she'll be his everything. Yes. Carl, flesh that out, can you? What? Who's this? Parolees? Mm -hmm. Is focusing on a sexual act. Right. She is focusing on a life. Right. Yeah. A In world. The fullness of it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just, just take it. I mean, example. Just because I think you're absolutely right that that this this term of Paul. She's already made it clear she loves him. Out of that love that I that I think we're meant to see as Christ-like. There's this wholeness that she has. She's going to do whatever she's going to do. But she says, you know. Um, a phoenix, captain, an enemy, a guide, a goddess, a sovereign, a counselor, a traitor. Take any of those. Take a mistress. Because that, that's one of the most um, touchy. Yeah. A mistress meaning... Can we get past embarrassments here? For, what does it mean, Doc? Yeah, you have somebody who's not your wife. You have sexual relations with her. Yeah, except in this case it'll be her. You know, she, she will answer that, so he won't have, I mean, the, the, the understanding always was that you go outside of marriage to fulfill whatever you can, and 
I mean, you're right on. She's going to be everything. He will not lack for anything in her. What about a traitress? Huh? She's going to trick him. She is going to trick him um, for his own good. I hate giving. Are we going to get into that? Yes. <laughs> Be patient. All right, because there's always like a couple of plot twists that I'm good, and then something happens, and at the end, doesn't make any sense. Wait, because we're. We, I want to build it. We've got a lot to get there. Um, right. <laughs> She's gonna, she's gonna be the cause of a real humiliation for him at court. Yes. He's, he, wait. I mean, let me put this as pot. She's gonna make him deal with faults in his character because they've been covered up, concealed. So, I, I just think um, Carl was, I mean, right on. And I just keep in mind Christ when you hear that. There's this. She. She, how'd you put it? What'd she say? She's going to be everything. She says all, everything. All of them, yeah. She will bring that kind of wholeness. Now just hold on to that because when she goes to the king and proposes to heal him, the king doesn't believe she can do it. So there's something extraordinary going on in this woman in her love of this man. Um, and she's going to accomplish things that other women, other men don't. Um... Going over to um, line 210. Parolles is making his departure from court, saying goodbye. He's going to go off with Bertram to Paris. Um, and we know from the exchange between Helen and Parolles that she sees through him. Other people don't. Even the Countess doesn't see through him the way she does. She sees him. He's a coward. He's a liar. One line... 195, um, he identifies himself with Mars. He's going to go off and fight. You know that Mars is the goddess of fight in the, in the old world. Um, the wars have kept, so kept you under that you must needs be born under Mars when he was in predominant, when he was retrograde, I think, rather. That is when he's moving backwards. She knows him. Why think you so? You go so much backward when you fight. That's for advantage. He's saying, I only do it because it's being prudent, you know, so I can fight another day. So is running away. She goes on and on. He, it's like he's getting uncomfortable because she's seen more and he takes, his, um, um, he takes his leave. He says, farewell when thou hast leisure, say thy prayers. When thou hast none, remember thy friends. Get thee a good husband and use him as he uses thee. So farewell. She's by herself now, and this is another important um, soliloquy. Here's what she says. Our remedies off in ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth the backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed mine eye? The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains in sense and do suppose what hath been cannot be. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love. The king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. What is she saying here? If anybody can just give a general paraphrase. 
Our remedies often ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. If we want something, we need to work for it ourselves instead of waiting for heaven to give it to us. Yeah. And sometimes we, we undermine ourselves, defeat ourselves, because we, we assume heaven instead of working to get something ourselves. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't say it that way, but it's... What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feel... That is, she's seen something so beyond her power. And by the way, what's really interesting to me about this, remember, this is poetry, that, that there's a poetic power to what she does, the whole play. I, Shakespeare knows that there are going to be women who can't speak this language. Who, who, what, what man or woman could speak this language? And yet it's so clear when you read it that this language is peculiar to this woman. And there, there may be other women who don't have the, that language who would feel the same thing, absolutely know it in their hearts, even if they didn't have the words to say it. That's part of the power of what Shakespeare does with all of his characters, that he could have created a woman to say these, and whose words are so peculiar to who she is. Um, um, the mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things. What's that? There's these great differences in people. Bertram and, and uh, Helen are one. But there's something in nature that overcomes these vast spaces and brings like and like together. Bertram's gifted, even, even if he's ruining. She, it's, it's crucial to see that she sees something in him that other people don't see. To bring, she sees some goodness in him. In fact, let me put it differently because I don't want to lose this because if, if you read particularly feminists and they go, they go nuts on this. Um, remember the Divine Comedy. Beatrice was Dante's guide. Dante was damned when that story started. Right? I, just don't forget that. Beatrice saw that he was damned. That whole divine order was put into operation to save him. So obviously she saw something in Dante. Mary saw something in Dante. We know, I think we know from our own relationships that very often... A woman will see something, a wife will see something in her husband other people don't see. A husband will see something in a wife that other people don't see. Remember Dante's line, the women who have the intelligence of love, they don't see the world the same way other people do. When you look through eyes of love, put it differently, let me put it differently. What did Christ see when he came here and was in, um, met with all these sinners. The only time I remember Christ getting really angry at somebody is when they refused him, rejected him. Everywhere else, didn't matter how bad, say, the woman was, a prostitute. He saw that woman, he saw something in that woman other women or other men didn't see. When he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, I mean, he's mad at that point because Peter's getting in the way of his end. Peter's saying, you don't have to die. 
Christ knows he's got to, you know, Christ saw through eyes of love, and what he saw changed. He could see something, could see things other people didn't. Um, the mightiest fate in fortune, nature brings to join like light. There's something inherently good in us that makes it possible for us to come together when other things separate us, like the class things in France. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains and sense. Like the empiricists, if, if we bound ourselves to just what our senses see, there's so much more we're going to miss. She's aware of all of this. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains and sense and do suppose what hath been cannot be. What has been before? Miracles. Do they exist anymore? No. She knows they do. So she knows that what has been can be again. So she's bringing a completely different mindset to the way she, the way she moves about, what she does in the world. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love, what woman can accomplish this who isn't completely in love with, you know, I mean, that's what our, our vows presumably should take us to in our marriages, to give ourselves completely. The king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. She's going to go with the intention of offering her services to the king. I want to just, um, let, me, let me get to that scene. There's other scenes. Um, like I'm going to skip the scene where... Um, the countess engages her and, and says, I'm your mother, and because she's heard that Helena loves her son. And I, I, th I think her first response is misgiving because she knows that there are women who want to go to court who just, what do you call gold diggers? I mean, that they're going to use the court to prosper. And so she's really severe on Helen, and finally Helen goes, Helena goes down on her knees and um, confesses that she does love her son. Um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good scene, but we, I, I want to be careful of our time because there's a couple scenes that are, to me, more important. Go to Acts 2, scene 1. The Countess sends Helena off with her approval. Once Helena admits that she loves Bertram, and the, the Countess believes that her love is genuine, then her, her whole manner changes. She's gentle and approving and encourages her to go. Um, so, again, a woman. She's, she has no scruples about Helena going to court after her son, knowing that the son is above Helena in rank. So there's this feminine, I don't know what to call it, this sense of love for another that isn't so bound by boundaries the way the men are, the way the, the social structure is. And don't forget, Helena, Helena never aims to do away with that structure. Um, her aim is Bertram. She's, she's, she's not trying to revolt or pull off a revolution. She's, um, she wants to marry. Um, Bertram. Um, she comes to the court in Paris to offer her services. Go to Act 
2, scene 1, about line um, 100 or so. The king has looked back fondly on Helena's father, and he's sorry that he's not alive because there's something in him that believes that if the father were alive, the father might be able to heal him, but he's dead. About line 100, I knew him, the rather will I spare my praises towards him, knowing him is enough. On Beth of dead, many receipts he gave me, chiefly one, which is which has the dearest issue of his practice and of his old experience, the only darling he bade me store it up as a triple I. You know that triple I in occult yeah. religions was thought to have a power for penetrating things. Um, so Helena sees this as a power given to her by her father, who is this great physician. And from what said earlier, he, he, he almost overcame the mortality of nature. His gifts were so great. He bade me store it up as a triple I, safer than my own too. Where dear I have so, and hearing your high majesty is touched with a malignant cause, wherein the honor of my dear father's gift stands chief in power, I come to tender it, she says. He puts her off. Um, he doesn't believe she can help him. Um, now going over to about line 130 or so. Um, she keeps urging herself, he keeps refusing. Um, I cannot give thee less to be called grateful. Thou thoughtest to help me, and such thanks I give, as one near death to those that wish him live. But now at full I know thou art no part, I knowing all my peril, thou no art. What can I do, can, what I can do, can do no hurt to try, since you set up your rest against remedy. He that of greatest works is finisher, does often them by weakest minister. So holy written babes has judgment shown when judges have been babes. Great floods have flown from simple sources and great seas have dried when miracles have by, by the greatest been denied. So at those times, very often, when people have the least faith that something happens, often expectation fails and most often there where most it promises and off it hits where hope is coldest and despair most fits. I must not hear thee, fare thee well, kind maid, thy pains not us, must by thyself not use, must thyself be paid. Proffers not took reap, thanks for their reward. Inspired merit, so by breath is barred. It is not so with him that all things knows, as tis with us that square our guest by shows. But most it's presumption in us, when the help of heaven we count the act of men. Dear sir, to my endeavors give consent, of heaven, not me, make an experiment. I'm not an imposter that proclaim myself against the level of mine aim. She's not overreaching herself. But know I think and think I know most sure my art is not past power, nor, your past, nor you past cure. He says, are you so confident? What are you willing to risk? Um, she says, line 170, tax of impudence, a strumpet's boldness, a divulged shame traduced by odious ballads, my maiden's name, that is, she's going to be ridiculed, mocked publicly, seared otherwise, no worse of worst, extended with wildest torture, let my life be ended. Now, she's saying, I'm risking my life. He's saying, what are you, what are you going to put up here to say this? Because he's embarrassed. Everybody's tried their best and nobody's succeeded. 
Methinks in thee some blessed spirit doth speak his powerful sound within an organ weak. And what impossibility was make men go off to war. The men are fighting battles. That's what the men do. They're off in this public world showing how strong they are, how powerful they are. She's this, she's not a man. She's not going into battle. Um, his powerful sound within an organ weak. And what impossibility would slay in common sense since saves another way. Thy life is dear for all that life can rate. Worth name of life in thee hath estimate. Youth, beauty, wisdom, courage. All that happiness and prime can happy call. Thou this to hazard needs must intimate. Skill infinite, infinite, or monstrous, desperate. And you've got to be out of your mind or you've got extraordinary abilities. Sweet practicer, sweet practicer, thy physic I will try that ministers thine own death if I die. Um, he's going to go ahead with it. Um, um, explain what just happened and what was unusual about these lines if you were paying attention. Hmm? She, she changed his mind about... She has. You know, he, he wasn't going to let her try to help him, but now he's going to. What, what led him to change? She put it all on the line. She said, kill me if I don't yeah, she put her money don't make you survive. Yeah, yeah. She was willing to risk her life. Oh, for yes. Reminds me of Bertram in um, Merchant of Venice. He who would has her all. You know, that, but this is farther. because It's not just has to go away and not marry. She, she's going to die. So she's giving, she's giving up everything. to do. She believes in it that much. So this is not words, this is not parole, she's not in speech. She believes, she believes this in the depths of her being. But what about the lines? Did you not, did you hear anything? Well, they rhyme. Why? The, well, the, her last soliloquy, her lines rhymed all of a sudden. I don't know, she's, she's just given to enchanting speech. <laughs> <laughs> and the king's words rhyme too. Oh, okay. So they're in, in a concord. I know, and yeah, but why would she? Yes, they are. I mean, they're they're gradually coming together. Yeah. yeah. But why? What else does rhyme do? We we talked about this in Chaucer with the, you know the royal couplets mm -hmm. and. It gives you a sense of hope, of a pattern, of a logos. The logos. Makes it annoying. Huh? <laughs> makes it annoying. Oh God! <laughs> Somebody save me from. Rhyme is sweet. Nice, it flows. Harmonious, ordered, beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I think what Shakespeare's, because if you listen to her, she's offering her life. In one sense, he is to get past his embarrassment because he's afraid he's going to look like a fool if he lets this woman try it again when all these doctors failed. I really think they've entered a holy space, that this is liturgical, that there is a formality and a dignity to the two of them, a king and a servant, who's claiming, as an act of love, I mean, Carl just hit, she's, she's giving everything, her love is that whole that she's willing to risk her life for it, and the king feels that. So there is this coming together of two people, and I think Shakespeare, it's not, it's not, it's not he's not being technical, it's his way of signaling this deeper harmony, this 
something approaching sacred. Because remember, when you go through all the world, all her words, she's 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 acknowledging that she if if she can do this, she can only do it with divine help. A divine power is speaking. That's what you know. His his power. Methinks the against some blessed spirit does speak his powerful sound within an organ weak. Um, youth, beauty, wisdom, courage. Inspired merit so by breath is barred. It is not so with him that all things knows as tis with us. Dear sir, to my endeavors give consent of heaven, not me, make an experiment. She's saying, she's an instrument. She's serving. Trust God in this. Okay, stop for a moment. How, I mean, I, I hope it's clear. How extraordinary is this? How many, how many, I read Paul's lines. How many people go into their love believing, wait, let me go back, sorry. Christ went into towns after towns, right? He left a town because he said, miracles aren't going to be performed here. A week ago, a week ago, the reading was, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would long ago have repented. But it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than the judgment for you. He entered these towns, they were unbelieving. How many Paul, how many of the disciples, God, this, it actually shakes me. How many of the disciples actually chased out serpents, exercised demons, healed people? How many people approach their marriages with the wholeness of love that Paul is talking about when he said, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power and love and self-control. How much do we undermine our own, the gifts that God has given us by something selfish in us? Helen is a figure who, show, who's, who is all of these gifts, and right now she's putting them on the line. I mean, she's willing to risk her life, and she's saying, don't make a trial of me, make a trial of heaven. She's so completely one with a divine power. How many of us undermine ourselves because, <laughs> either because of the cost, because the risk is too great, it means giving ourselves, or because we don't believe strongly enough? So this is an extraordinary woman. This is, I, I don't know of another woman in Shakespeare. There's not Hermione in Winter's Tale, Portia comes close. But Portia, I mean, we're going to do Merchant. I think when you, when you get there, you see, Bassani is a really good guy. You know, Helen is offering her life for this scoundrel, basically. She loves him. She sees something in him. And she's committing herself completely so my question is, how much is she like Mary, as I described her a half an hour ago? Go ahead. I got a whole different. Go. I got a whole different thing on that. Go. And this is what it seemed like to me. Go ahead. She's in love with Bertram. She what? She's in love with Bertram. Right. He leaves. How's she going to get him back? We have to wait for the second out of the play to find that out of here. The king, and what does she say? She wants in return. Choice of a husband, yeah. Right. Mary didn't. So you're saying that she has an ulterior motive for her actions, whether Mary does or not. No, it's not ulterior motive. It is her motive. Right, it's all right, whatever. Okay, let me put this out here, and I want to read one last passage and then we'll leave it. But it's a good, 
Because Lot, here, here's the question that drives most critics nuts on this play. Is she Machiavellian? And justify the meaning, that's the name of that. Is she Machiavellian so that everything she's doing is selfish? She's got, I mean, they're alter, it's not ulterior. She's, that is, this is her project. She's going to do this all for herself. So she's completely self-seeking. Or is there something else? And I'm trying to go through these passages because I want to be careful of the language. I've tried to pick out some of the, you know, like the ones here where she's apparently risking herself. Is she selfish? Would she? But let me just put it out. It, because the, the real question this play invites is, is she Machiavellian? Are we on the verge of a modern world? Is this a modern woman, Machiavellian? Or is this looking back to a... It depends on your outlook of life. Are you negative or are you positive? So is it completely subjective? There's nothing in the text that no. has an objective reality beyond... Because well, lots of people can say whatever they want about it. Well, no, as theater goers, it's probably posing this question to people who are watching it. One person may see one thing, another person's going to see another. Everybody, everybody, can you quickly? Because we're going to stop. Go to Act Three. <laughs> Go to Act Three. Um, I, I wanted to go to the the ordeal scene where the lords line up that she can choose from. There's four lines. It, it's really a good scene because the, no, the nobles want, they see the goodness in her and are only too glad to, to marry. And, and you know it would be to their advantage because the, the king is going to enhance their life if she's just saved. So there's all these questions about what are people's motives, but we don't have time for that right now. I want to go to the scene. She, she, she met with each of the four men, and it was a dignified, formal um, scene, and she enters into it nervously. And she, she, and it's made clear from words, she enters into it aware that she might be refused, even though the king is, none of the lords refuse her until she comes to Bertram and says, you're the man. This is the man that she homemade, just by the way. Just, um, now, Bertram refuses, and there's a tense moment when he defies the king, says, I'm not going to marry her. And finally, the king threatens him. It's, I'll, we'll go back and look at it briefly when we meet next time, because it's an important scene. <coughs> But he refuses. The, the king threatens him, and he accepts. Here, come on. Just, I'm just to take. Go to Act Three, Scene Two. So Bertram goes to Helena and says, "Go home. Return home. I'll let you know why later." He sends a letter to the king and to his mother, the countess, explaining that he will not go back to France. He's on his way to Florence to fight in the wars. He's not gonna. He's not gonna live up to his vow. They were married, and he sends this letter to his mother and to um, Helena. Helena returns home, and on in Act Three, Scene Two, um, line fifty-five, or, or no, line. Let's say line twenty. The countess reads the letter from her son. I have sent you a daughter-in-law. She hath recovered the king and undone me. I have wedded her, not bedded her, and sworn to make the knot eternal. You shall hear I am run away. Know it before the report comes. If there be breath enough in the world, I will hold a long distance. My duty to you. Um, about line 55. Helen is reading her letter and it says, 
when thou canst get the ring upon my finger, which never shall come off, this is the, his ancestral ring, it, it represents the lineage of his family, never shall come off, and show me a child begotten of thy body that I am father to, then call me husband. But in such a then I write a never. So unless she can get that ring off his finger and conceive a child. And he makes it clear, those are, so keep Griselda in mind, those are impossible tasks. Okay? Um, the countess is horrified about line 70, till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. Find you that there, I, madam. Tis but the boldness of his hand haply, which his heart was not consenting to. Nothing in France until he have no wife. There's nothing here that is too good for him, but only she, and she deserves the Lord, that 20, 20 such rude boys might tend upon and call her hourly mistress. Now, one of the, one of the things to keep in mind, in face of, you know, the, the critics who take the position that she is Machiavellian, it's the question that Chester's raising, everybody in the play acknowledges her virtue. Everybody sees something good. All the lords who wanted to marry her, the people around her, the countess. A servant only and a gentleman, which I have some time, Paroles, I, my good lady, a, a very tainted fellow and full of wickedness. My son corrupts a well-derived de nature with his inducement. Um, the countess leaves, and then Helena says this, till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. The world doesn't exist for him anymore until his marriage is dissolved because he's not going to marry. So he can't return. There's nothing there for him to return to. Nothing in France until he has no wife. Thou shalt have none. Now follow this closely. This is a soliloquy. So she's not talking to somebody. She's not trying to set somebody up or play with people. We, we can count on the integrity of these scenes like we do in Iago and Othello because these are spoken privately. They're not trying to put on a show. Nothing in France until he has no wife. Thou shalt have none, Rousselian, none in France. Thou hast thou, then hast thou all again, then. Poor Lord, is it I that chase thee from the country and expose those tender limbs of thine to the event of the non-sparing war? And is it I that drive thee from the sport of court? It's a good word for it, sport of court. Where thou wast shot at with fair eyes to be the mark, all these women looking at him, with fair eyes to be the mark of smoky muskets, that is often war. O you leaden messengers that ride upon the violent speed of fire, fly with false aim, move the still piercing air that sings with piercing. Do not touch my Lord. Whoever shoots at him, I set, I set him there. Whoever charges on his forward breast, I am the caitiff that do hold him to it. And though I kill him not, I am the cause. If death was so affected, Better tour I met the raven lion, lion when he roared with sharp constraints of hunger. Better tour that all the miseries which nature owes were mine at once. All of nature's miseries. No, come home, Rousselian, whence honor but of danger wins a scar, as oft it loses all. I will be gone, my being here it is that holds thee hence. Shall I stay here to do it? No. Although the air of paradise did fan the house and angels office all, I will be gone. That painful rumor may report my flight. She thinks that if he hears it, he can come home again. Come night and day, for with the dark poor thief I steal away. We know what happens at this point. She goes on a pilgrimage. She's going on a pilgrimage. 
Describe Helen in this scene. She's whining. She what? She's whining. <laughs> How is she whining? It's his choice. She what? Everybody makes choices. She, yes. She made a choice to follow him and want to marry him. Great choice, not a problem. She's obviously a good, virtuous woman. He made the choice to run away, and she's whining about it. if something happens to him, it's my fault. What a crock shit. Mark, don't use that language here. Okay. Mark, no. fine. No, dude, I've asked you this before. Take take better care, Mark. It's, it's not, not what she's doing at all. I no, what? She's, she's saying she's worried that he's going to be harmed, and she wants him back home where he will be safe, and she knows he won't come home if she's there, so she's leaving so that he will come home. And she's giving up herself to, for his benefit, for his safety. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I'm kind of, I think there's a little bit of both of those. She does kind of feel responsible, but the way that she thinks about it being responsible is that, yes, she will, because as long as she's there, he won't right. leave the war, so if she's not there, then maybe he will leave the war. The interesting thing that's going on here is she's taking this whole thing on herself. Yes. She sees herself. <laughs> she, she, she's taking She's taking responsibility for all that he's done. Just stop for a moment. I mean, go back in history. The, the only person that I know of who's done that in history is Christ, who, who, who went to a cross knowing that everybody was... She, she sees that she's implicated in what he did, and she's feeling bad um, that he's going to have to suffer she just, I, it's just an amazing scene. I don't, I don't think she's whining at all. She's, she's feeling a sorrow um, because she's taking responsibility. She holds herself responsible for what he's doing. She loves him enough so that she'll leave so he can come back. Yeah. She doesn't have a choice, really. She, if she really loves him and wants to be married to him, he's not, he said he's not coming right. back if she's there. So. Right. Right. That's right. But he, but he the, that's a rational choice. choice. He made his choice to run away, and that's not her fault. He made what? He made his choice to run away and yeah. say those things. That's not her fault. Well, except only in a yeah. only in a black-white legalistic world. I mean, there, it's it's there's a marriage. They're implicated in each other, and it, you know, a husband and wife can stand off accusing each other. But in this case, they've got vows. He's breaking his. He's running off. He's 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 made that clear. The interesting thing about her is that she's taken the whole thing on herself. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing act. So it, it 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 asks us to look at this question: How do we see Helena as a heroine? By by the way, Carl Carl's words. I mean, the the pivotal word was if. You know, if she if she loves him, because she could have if if a woman if a woman didn't hold herself to that love as completely as she did a woman could have done lots of other things there's a whole multitude of other choices to make but if she loves him what does she do what she does here is sort of amazing because she takes the whole thing on herself and she's going to go on this pilgrimage and it's going to take us to this question is she machiavellian is is this is she motivated by selfish motives or is this an image of a rare kind of humility. Let's leave it there. We've got the end of the play to look at. Pay attention to the language because there's going to be lots of allusions to divine things, miracles, and strange things happening in this play. Okay?
Mark, don't use language like that. You, there's other ways to say that. I don't think she's not telling. I think she's really nice and That's all. I, I think that's true. But I think she's willing to do anything. Not not in a mean way. Mm -hmm. Not in, not in a right. bad way. Right. But I think she's just 